0: This is part 7 of The Horse and the Rider. It's one story that begins at part 1, so if you haven't heard that, go back. and the Rider, part seven the game peter Quinnell live was in many ways a below average example of a man in his late 40s a sickly white second generation australian product of upper middle class parents who had geared all the lessons they imparted to their only son towards enhancing his respectability he understood the world through the filter of his private education and he bore no real curiosity about the workings of the things that it had overlooked. But the movies and television shows he'd consumed had taught him the rules of being a fugitive, and he planned to follow them. He had to dye his hair and shave his beard. Those were the rules. He turned into the cosmetics aisle. Before him was a small, strange man. The man was kneeling in front of one of the shelves, gathering up packets. As Peter approached, the man stood up. He had thin, oddly bent knees and a strange stance. His feet were tiny and clad in leather shoes. He was scrawny and pigeon-chested, but wore clothes that would have better fit a muscular gym junkie. His pink singlet had a low-cut scoop neck, and his chest was red and irritated from where he'd shaved it and the hairs had become ingrown. One nipple peeked out the side of the scoop-necked singlet. The packets he'd been gathering up were boxes of hair dye for men. In the shopping trolley next to him were stacked dozens of greenish boxes of dye, each with a ruggedly handsome hunk staring out at Peter. The shelf before the man was entirely bare. Are you... are you using all of those? Peter stammered at the man, who chortled merrily and clapped his hands. His fingers were long and tapering, and his forearms were intensely hairy. Of course, the man crowed. I'll need all of this, and more. He tossed his hair luxuriously like a shampoo commercial. It was thick and dark. It shone under the fluorescent supermarket lights. I just need one box, Peter pressed a pained expression on his face. Please, it's very important. The man moved towards Peter and he realised that what he thought were leather shoes on the man's feet actually seemed to be tiny cloven hooves. They were impossibly small for human feet, and they clopped lightly on the supermarket linoleum. Peter let out a low moan of anguish. Were the hooves real? Was this situation real? Had he fallen asleep and begun to dream? Peter, the hooved man said, and Peter's eyes shot up in alarm. I've got an idea. Why don't we gamble for them? He stuck out a long and elegant hand. I'm brave, he said. Let's gamble for the dye. If you win, I'll give you one of my boxes of hair dye. He winked at Peter. But if I win, you'll owe me. Peter didn't know what to say, so he said, okay. And he followed Braith through the thick, swinging plastic doors that led to the Woolworths loading dock, along a concrete walkway, down some steps and around the corner, until they arrived outside. Between the bales of compacted cardboard, Braith reached down and produced a pair of dice. Very simple, he told Peter. We roll and the dice decides who deserves to win. Peter looked helplessly at the dice. I I don't know the rules, he mumbled. It's easy, Braith told him. Watch me, 12, he called out. And he flipped the dice onto the concrete. On one die was the number 12, on the other was nothing. That's one for me. ''We'll play first to three,'' he told Peter. Peter picked up one of the dice and looked at it. On one side was a 12, on another the number 6. There was a spade and an eye, and a couple of symbols Peter didn't recognise. ''What are these?'' he asked. "Fawn dice,'' Braith rapped briskly. ''Go on, roll it!'' Peter picked up the dice and Braith clopped his hooves on the cement with glee. His dark and wavy hair bobbed with the motion. Peter studied his face for a moment, and his eyes fell on Braith's thick, dark monobrow. Peter was repulsed. He rolled the dice in his hand before releasing them onto the concrete floor. "Uh, Twelve, he called out. The dice showed Snake's eyes. Peter picked them up disappointedly. Unlucky, Braith crowed. He clopped his hooves again and picked up the dice. The four of clubs! he called, and Peter watched in annoyance as the dice tumbled through the air and landed on the concrete. One four, one tiny club. He picked up the dice to inspect them. One of them had only numbers, and the other one had only symbols. Peter was sure just a moment ago they'd been different. He rattled them around in his palm to roll again, and as he did, he noticed the phone number on the side of the skip bin they were crouched near, which read 488-5555. Uh, fives, he called out. The dice rattled around and came to a halt. Five and five. Now you're getting it, Braith said. He rubbed his thin, curiously tapering hands together, and as he did, he disturbed his low-cut pink singlet. The fabric billowed out, and a second tiny pink nipple revealed itself. It was pierced with an odd diamond stud that looked like an earring. Diamond, Peter called, and the dice spun through the air again and landed on the dirty concrete to reveal a blank face and a single diamond. Peter looked quickly at Braith in surprise. Braith looked unhappy. Give me those dice, you idiot, he swore at Peter and snatched at the dice. They fell from Peter's hand, but as they did, he mumbled, but... And as the dice hit the ground, both of the faces showed the word but. Braith stomped his feet on the ground in irritation. Jesus, you... Fucking... He jumped up and sprinted over to the skip bin in the corner of the dock and from behind it, pulled out a filthy, creased shopping bag. He thrust it into Peter's hand. It was larger than he expected and heavy. Get out of here, Braith said roughly. Through the back. He pointed at a narrow concrete passageway heading out of the dock. Peter Quinnell Live was apologetic, although he didn't know for exactly what. Uh, Braith, he tried. Uh, thank you. But Braith gave him a filthy look. Just fuck off, he spat. Peter walked cautiously down the passageway until it opened out into a nondescript courtyard. Across one wall were three doors. One said exit, the others said men and women. Peter entered the door that read men to find a surprisingly well-kept bathroom with a small red couch on one wall and a brightly lit mirror and vanity with various men's grooming tools lined up in a small cabinet. As good a time as any, he reckoned. He opened a cabinet and found a pair of scissors. He trimmed his hair neatly around the temples and the sides and the back and he used a disposable razor to shave his beard off. He left his moustache. He reached into the battered grey plastic bag for the dye he'd won from Wraith, and his hand touched something cold and metal. He'd never touched a gun before, but he knew what it was all the same. Suddenly he was lightheaded with elation. He didn't know why exactly, because there was no reason that the challenges he was faced with would melt away the moment he grasped the square black pistol in his hand. He pulled the gun out of the bag and turned it over in his hands. He traced the contours of the moulded black butt and let it rest back into his soft pink hand. People had solved problems with guns before, he asserted. Problems that may have seemed insurmountable at first, until those people had changed the variables with the introduction of the gun. The gun wiped any previous deal off the table. Yes, problems had also been worsened with the introduction of a gun. This was also true. But without exception, those characters of history and fiction whose plans had become undone when a gun was introduced had found their fate because they weren't careful enough. And Peter was a very careful man. He held the gun in one hand and clasped the other to it, raising the weapon parallel to his temple like 007 James Bond. Pow, he whispered at his reflection. The 45 degree angle flattered his profile and he craned his neck and jutted his chin for even greater effect. Here was the reflection of a man capable of straightening out any misunderstandings the vagaries of fate may have lobbed carelessly in his direction. Here, he thought, was the reflection of a man at whom a jury could look and understand intuitively that not every regrettable loss of life required punishment to be meted out that perhaps we weren't beyond mercy and that maybe, just maybe, it was enough for Peter Quinnell Live to send his most sincere well-wishes to the families and hope for a speedy recovery from their grief. He packed away the scissors and clippers and flushed the cut hair down the toilet. He thought about putting the gun away, but he enjoyed holding it and he felt entitled to a little indulgence. He held it surreptitiously by his waist as he stepped out of the bathroom and was confronted by Braith who snarled at him that he was supposed to be gone by now. Braith peered fearfully over one shoulder towards the alleyway they played the fawn dice in. As he did, Peter's flabby index finger drooped onto the trigger of the gun and with incredible noise and force it blasted a wet hole through Braith's sternum. He collapsed to the ground and lay still. Peter stared in horror at the gun, then up at the 14-year-old kid who had suddenly appeared by another of the low-lying beige demountables that clustered near the back entrance of the Woolworths. Without taking his eyes off Peter, the kid raised his mobile phone and pointed it at where Peter stood over Braith and Braith's swiftly flowing pool of blood. Don't, Peter warned him. Delete that. Hey guys, what's up? The kid said, staring transfixed at Peter. I'm here at the back of Fitzroy Falls Woolworths. That's a supermarket here in Australia for my international fans. What's up? Thanks for watching. Peter's newsman training told him the optics were not good, and he'd tried to hide behind something. He found the doorway to the bathroom and stepped back inside. So it looks like this weird little guy has just been shot by the dude you just saw hide in the bathroom. Crazy. I've never seen blood like that before. Sound off in the comments if you've ever seen this kind of blood. And don't forget to like and subscribe. Peter looked at Braith's body and realised the kid was right. Braith's blood seemed to glitter in the late afternoon light. He felt desperately uncomfortable and he wondered how he could make the kid stop whatever he was doing. Could you stop that? He called out. Hey, dude, you're live on YouTube right now. What's your name? The kid asked, and Peter, through simple force of habit, peered around the doorframe and replied, I'm Peter Quinnell Live. Hey, Peter Quinnell Live, the kid called out. You're getting blown up in the comments. Give us a wave. And he waggled the phone at Peter. Peter waved lamely. His hand returned to his side and brushed the gun that he'd stuffed in his pocket. He could take the kid out too, he realised. He was probably unarmed and more interested besides in talking to his phone. But his hand closed around the gun and he realised he couldn't. Not while the kid was going live anyway. He'd had a recurring dream in which a sniper on top of the building across the plaza from 5 News had fired a high-powered bullet into his head while he was reading the news, showering the camera with bone and viscera and turning ordinary people off their dinner. And something deep inside told him that this wasn't so different. The kid had an audience, didn't he? He had fans, and it was a terrible thing to upset fans. Peter tucked the gun back in his pocket. Bye, Peter Quinnell Live, the kids sang out. We love you. And Peter hurried through a small gap between the two buildings. He emerged on the other side in the car park. The hopelessness he'd been trying to shake ever since the incident with the Greek man returned to him. He loped like a great, stupid ape. A huge part-pig simian idiot with a tiny brain and a heart full of self-pity. His knuckles hung loosely by his side, and as he stared up at the brilliant pink and red sunset, he felt a little bit of his soul seep out. He looked down at it. It looked like a shimmering mother-of-pearl wave, and it spread out over the parking lot in only a moment. A little bit went down a drain. Another threaded through the tire treads of an old maroon Toyota Celica, and another zipped cheekily into his pocket and up the barrel of the gun tucked inside it. Hey, Peter called in alarm. Hey. He shook the bag of hair dye and it rustled in the cooling air. At the noise and the panic rising up in his throat, the mother-of-pearl light halted and pulsed for a second, and then as quickly as it had left Peter's body, it untangled itself from the cracks it had washed into and returned to him. It was looser now and a little dirtier, And a little grainier. Peter hugged his torso and tried to shake himself. Something had become undone. He felt unbalanced and overwhelmed, like one of those Egyptian gods who had an animal's head and a human body and ran, Peter had always presumed, chaotic and terrified along the banks of the ancient Nile, bewildering ancient Egyptians with their erratic terror and mismatched anatomy. Their animal brains and human bodies were grotesque and ungainly and Peter pitied them and himself as he shambled to the car and clumsily pulled at the door handle. Let's go, he moped pathetically to Jackie. The car rumbled back to life. They eased out of the empty twilight car park and back down onto the road. Peter stared straight ahead as the bush sped past, his jaws sagging and his eyes watering. He felt tired and dirty deep, deep down. They drove for 10 minutes or so. As they crested the top of the mountain range that Fitzroy Falls perched on the edge of, the land flattened out and the dense bush was replaced by pastures and dams. Here and there, slanting tin lean-tos sheltered old bathtubs of water and dry feed for cattle. The road was long and straight, and Jackie stared at Peter, waiting for him to move some way, a blink or a twitch, just something, but not even his hands on the steering wheel moved. She cleared her throat. "'Hey,' she said. And then as though he'd been waiting for a sound, a creature ran from the thicket at the side of the road and stood in front of the car. It was nude and pink and flabby, hairless with a pointed sloping head lined with deep fleshy creases. It could have been a pig except for the fact that it ran on its hind legs and carried in one hand a blackened kitchen knife. It shrieked as the car rushed towards it. A human foot was tucked in one of its armpits. It was covered in faint drawings in blue ink. Peter may have been able to stop, perhaps, although it was hard to say. The creature was very close to the car when it ran out, and it was also true that it was captivating in a terrifying way that slowed Peter's reflexes as he stared aghast. But he did not stop, and as the creature screamed at the oncoming car in the dull late afternoon sun, Peter drove into it. It hit the bonnet with an enormous crash. It rolled over the roof and hit the road with a splat. Peter brought the car to a screeching stop and Peter and Jackie sat frozen in their seats for a moment in the new silence. Eventually, Jackie leaned forward and opened the door. She sagged sideways out of the car and looked behind them. The creature lay on the road. It lay on its side, body facing away, and as she squinted to see, her blood ran cold because its neck had snapped and its head had twisted around, and it stared back at her with brilliant blue eyes, dead but still somehow crazed, she pulled herself back into the car. Peter closed his eyes and leant back against the headrest. He didn't look at her. After a moment, she croaked. Nothing we can do. Peter opened his eyes. He felt numb. He sat still for 30 seconds, and then, for lack of anything else that seemed appropriate, he climbed out of the car and looked back. The road stretched out flat and straight behind and in front of them. It was usually busy, but at this moment, Fortune had chosen to smile on them. There were no other cars to be seen. From where Peter stood, any that appeared would take five or six minutes to arrive at their location. He staggered around to inspect the front of the car. The hood had caved in. It was nearly comical the way it plunged inwards in the rough shape and size of a man's torso. Liquid was spilling out onto the road and steam puffed up from a gap where the metal had buckled. A blot of thick red blood with fine hairs stuck to it trailed up towards the windscreen. There was a grisly realness to the blood and hair that was new, despite Peter's mounting body count. Sticky, blotted, unsightly, he resented what it said about him and the news experience he sought to cultivate. He went back around to the driver's side door and turned the key in the ignition. It made a single choking sound and was silent. Peter looked back at the lonely, balled-up figure in the roadway. Well, he sighed. He said it with the cadence you might use at the end of a long night at a friend's dinner party. Now that the initial shock of the hideous creature rolling over the car had passed, the necessity of being far away from it began to assert itself. The death was as good as forgotten. Well, might be time to go. Jackie blinked at Peter. What's your plan? She asked with genuine curiosity. Well, he pondered, it's my car. He thought about it. It's my car, so no one should find it or they'll think I'm responsible for this unfortunate situation. There was no flicker of self-awareness on his face as he said it. We'll have to get it off the road, he continued. He popped open the back and began to unload his collection of leather valises. She watched incredulously. Are you serious? He knew what she meant, but he still asked her, What do you mean? She rolled her eyes. He tucked a smaller valise under one arm, gathered two handles in each hand and tried to look comfortable. Pathetic, she told him. You can't carry all of those. He continued loading up in silence, and after a while swung one elbow over the top of the boot and slammed it down. He looked around dopeily, then placed the valises in a neat pile on the gravel verge, and leaning in through the open door, released the handbrake. Help me push it, he moped. Together, they heaved the car straight along the road until it began to build up speed. When it was going fast enough, Peter turned the steering wheel sharply, and it careened off the embankment and down a short slope. It burst through a sagging chicken wire fence and continued to pick up speed for several hundred metres until it ploughed with a great splash into a dam. When the spray settled, it was gone. Thanks for listening to The Horse and the Rider. It's written, read and produced by me, Max Laverne, I'd love to hear from you if you've been enjoying it. You can tweet at me, prawn underscore meat, or send me an email, maxlaverne at gmail.com. If you'd like to support the podcast, you can make a donation at ko-fi.com slash maxlaverne. If you know anyone who's into the New South Wales Southern Highlands town of Mossvale, make sure you tell them about this podcast because next week in episode eight, Peter and Jackie visit it. So it's a great time to mossy on over, partner, as they probably say.